0: Hello, my name is Shu Cao Mo. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am blessed and honored to have with me on the show today Professor Arthur Kleinman. Dr. Kleinman is a physician and anthropologist, a graduate of Stanford University and Stanford Medical School, with a master's degree in social anthropology from Harvard and trained in psychiatry at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Kleinman is a leading figure in several fields, including medical anthropology, cultural psychiatry, global health, social medicine, and medical humanities. A China scholar, since 1978, he has conducted research in China and in Taiwan from 1969 until 1978. Professor Kleinman has published seven single-authored books and has co-authored books on cultural and depression, SARS in China, World Mental Health, Suicide, placebos, AIDS in China, and the relationship of anthropology to philosophy. So my first question is, what inspired you to write this book, and how did your background in medical anthropology and psychiatric epidemiology shape your perspectives on the synergy and tension between medical and anthropological knowledge?
1: Um, This book came after I had written several other books. My first book was an ethnography Based largely in Taiwan, of what constitutes a healthcare system. And contrary to the ideas of public health experts, I argued, and now I think it's widely accepted, that a healthcare system should be understood from the way that patients and families think about and use available health services. So when you look at things from that perspective, then you get a completely different view of the healthcare system. And at the same time, uh, I tried to compare different kinds of healers and suggested that biomedical physicians, traditional Chinese medicine physicians, even healers could be compared altogether, compared in terms of the way they organize the clinical work and the relationships with patients and families and what i was particularly interested in that first book was the way that illness experience was first engaged and understood by patients and families with without any contact with the the rest of the healthcare system, just in the context of the family, how knowledge about illness and care begins and plays its largest role in the context of the family and the Guangxi Wang. So that was that first book, and then after that book, I did a book on my an ethnography, ethnographic study of the survivors of culture of China's Cultural Revolution. This is the Wunwa Dagamine EO. I looked at the way that many of them came to suffer Shenzhen shui um, neurasthenia, and how that acted as a cultural medium, an acceptable medium for expressing criticism and anger and upset in ways that couldn't be expressed publicly without getting into serious trouble. And then after that book, I did a book called The Illness Narratives, which looked at how you could take context into account in uh, medicine and how it would change the way you thought of people's normality and pathology. And at the same time, I I wrote a book called Rethinking Psychiatry, which said, Since most people in the world live outside of North America and Western Europe and are regarded by North Americans and Western European psychiatrists as, quote-unquote, non-Western, if you took that non-European, non-American population, which made up 80% of the world's population, and looked at the kinds of troubles they had, and the way they categorized and responded to their troubles, how would it change the picture of psychiatry, the way you looked at psychiatry? After that, I wrote the, I wrote writing at the margin, and writing at the margin, I've always done several things at once. Writing at the margin appeared in 1995, at the same time that something else happened in 1995. In 1995. I led a group of people at Harvard to produce the first world mental health report, which was released all over the world at the United Nations and New York, in several Asian spots in India and China, in Italy, in Geneva, Switzerland, and in Africa. And that report was the first one to look at mental health problems around the world and ask how do we respond to this and suggest the importance of global mental health so at the same time that I did that which was my policy interest or advocacy interest writing at the margin appeared which was really my intellectual interest at that time so if you look at read writing at the margin at it its chapters Some are original, and some are revised and reprinted from different places. And so the introduction is entirely new. And that gave me a chance to look at medical anthropology as an intellectual career. In other words, it just so happened that I did medical anthropology. But in my own mind, I could have done a number of different fields. But how did I use medical anthropology to develop ideas and to make them relevant to health and medicine and large issues in the world. And then the second chapter is a critique of biomedicine, which parallels, because I didn't know it at the time, parallels the work of a colleague of mine in History of Science at Harvard, by the name of Shigehisa Kuriyama, who wrote a book much later called The Expressiveness of the Body as a way of contrasting Chinese medicine and ancient Western medicine. But I did not know his at that time, and I didn't even know any of his publications. So this was sort of my own way of making that contrast. And what I was taken with were two major sources of intellectual engagement in the West and spiritual engagement. One was the idea of a single God in the Judeo-Christian tradition, that there is one God. This is the so-called Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. And it contrasts very substantially With Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism. And my point in that was that the idea of a single God led to a kind of mindset that saw only one reality and all other realities rather than being allowed were anathematized, were rejected. Uh, and that, I can that with the Chinese medicine idea, that ideas in traditional Chinese medicine never drop out. So at different times, wuxing, yin yang, different theories were more important, uh, but others never dropped out. They were never rejected. They simply may have been supplanted for a particular period of time. And this is two radically different ways of thinking. In this, I was hearkening back to a book I had read when I was an undergraduate at Stanford around 1960, which was a book by uh, Hajime Nakamura called The Ways of Thinking of Eastern Peoples, which characterized Chinese, Japanese, Korean ways of thinking as distinctive from European and North American ways of thinking. And what I drew on for that, to parallel the idea in the moral sphere of there being one God, was the idea in the intellectual sphere of there being one truth, which you see very clearly in the Greek tradition, the idea that veritas, which is Latin, but in the Greek equivalent of that, would stand for a single truth, and that all other claims are wrong. And that is a radically different way of conceiving of ideas, conceptions, ways of understanding the world. And so I critiqued biomedicine from those two perspectives and pointed out that that it had developed intellectual traditions that were very dangerous one a sort of wanton reductionism also un- unwillingness to accept multiple realities including the realities of patients etc and the next chapter in this book is the is um, the anthropology of bioethics and that came out of my own moral concerns and the fact that 3 years after this book I would give the Tanner Lectures at Stanford on moral issues in life. My perspective here was that there was something wrong with the way that ethics was configured. There were several things that were wrong with it. One was that Rawls' notion of justice insisted on a what was called a veil of ignorance. And that, that veil of ignorance meant That the fundamental differences in societies and in communities, which is the relative inequality of people, would never be taken into account as your starting point. But it had to be. So that criticism made social justice into something that was really not just, in my view. The second criticism was that we had allowed ethics to become a non empirical field so that it was entirely tied to philosophy. And without having a footstep into people's worlds and lives, it left out most of life and created intellectual assortment of baggage that were intellectual problems that philosophers had run into and run out of that had almost nothing to do with the ethics that people were confronting in their real lives. And so I felt that you had to start with a radically different view of ethics, with a view that people live not as individuals isolated in the world, but in local communities. And I call them local worlds. And in those local worlds, there is an agreement at the social level of what matters and matters most. And that's really what the moral is. The moral, as I define it, is that local um, experience of what people have come to take to be the most significant, that matters most, that, where they have the greatest stake. And that means that, that from an ethical perspective, the moral doesn't have to be good at all, it could be terrible. If people have, for example, the idea of banishing widows or of burning witches or of killing people of another religion and race, if that's the agreement locally and people are deeply involved with that, that's their moral position. And the moral there is terrible. It's not good. And so the moral contrasts with the ethical. The ethical, in my view is the individual, and to a certain degree, the group's desire to get beyond the local and have some understanding of values that are translocal and that might even critique what's happening locally. And that aspiration for the translocal, I call ethics in in the way I, I do things. But that individual or network movement toward translocal, that aspiration, meets the real-world phenomena of ethics, which is that the ethical deliberations are already codified into systems. And so that when you go and look for something beyond the ethical, you run into an ethical tradition of some sort. That could be the Confucian tradition. It could be the Christian tradition of ethics, theological ethics. It could be Kantian approaches to ethics. It can be the American-based, NIH-based approach to bioethics. I then use that to critique the way that ethics is used in health and medicine. So, for example, if you go to, even today, to a hospital in China, a really good hospital like uh, Xiehe Yuan or Zhongshan in in Shanghai, Shangya in Changsha. Those are all great medical schools, great uh, hospitals. But their ethics, what the ethics that they actually do in the hospital and that they teach to students is actually imported from the NIH. And they've done that systematically in order to be able to do collaborative research or just publish their research internationally because the NIH ethics has come to dominate bioethics internationally. And they don't draw at all from the Confucian tradition or the Taoist tradition or the Buddhist tradition. And yet in China, if you look at the way that people, ordinary people, confront problems in life, from suffering to death, they're not drawing from the Uh, Western tradition generally. They're drawing from Chinese traditions of ethics. And so my argument was you needed to have a Chinese approach to ethics that would parallel the Western approach and be available to people who were Chinese and who wanted to draw on a Chinese tradition. And, And actually, that's been done now by one of my former students, Nia Jingbao. Jingbao was professor of ethics both in Chinchiland in Otago, New Zealand. And also, he's written extensively now on what he calls transcultural medical ethics or medical ethics in the Chinese tradition. So that's what I was hoping would happen. And that did, did happen. And also, I think today, my critique of medical ethics is very well known to medical ethicists. And I think they're trying very hard to engage those ideas and and transform the way that medical ethics is done. Then the the third chapter, it's actually chapter four, but it's the third one that develops ideas in that book, was simply an ongoing debate I had in the literature with a great philosopher, economist at Harvard, and a friend of mine, Amartya Sen. Actually, he was a Nobel Prize-winning economist, uh, about the subjective and the objective. And the reason for that debate was I was challenging the idea of objectivity. And from an anthropological standpoint, all perceptions of the world are positioned in some local world, in some set of human conditions that are very particular. And therefore, the idea of objectivity from an anthropological standpoint has to be a limited understanding of objectivity or constrained idea of objectivity that rehearses that debate I had with the Sen. Then the second half of it are empirical studies. One of them I did with my late wife, Joan Kleinman, who was a very fine sinologist, had very, very fine knowledge of classical Chinese. Joan and I had written a famous paper that had been very widely cited called How Bodies Remember, about remembering the cultural revolution amongst Chinese we had studied and interviewed. And here we used those ideas to examine more fully how is suffering transformed uh, from the experience that the sufferer has through different idioms of distress. Some are local idioms of distress, some are professional idioms of distress, but all of them transform suffering in a certain way and either bring new things to it or leave certain things out that are important. So anyway, that's what that was about. And then there was one on pain and resistance. So I've always felt that medicine had not taken into account enough the way that life throws so many problems at people that they feel they need to resist something, resist authority, resist the world as they know it, resist powers in their local world. And that illness often got caught up in acts of resistance. Um, and then another chapter was on the social course of epilepsy. Mm-hmm. And here, I took a disease, epilepsy, that I had studied with the Tan EUN. In Beijing, there's a thing called the Neurosurgical Research Unit, the Shenzhen uh, Yike Yenjo store. And I had worked with that unit. And we did a study together in a very poor part of China. So poor was the area we studied that one family we studied, which had a rural family, had two sons. The sons went to school, one son one day, the other son the other day, and they switched off because they only had one pair of pants for the two sons to share. So poor was that family. And I wanted to look at, therefore, how biomedicine distorts the idea of the course, the trajectory of an illness, by focusing on what they call the natural trajectory, as if the illness outfolded from the gene pool or from the physiology. But the genes in physiology are in constant interaction with the social context, with the environment. And so in that setting, I wanted to show how you didn't have a natural course of a disease. You had a social course of a disease. And then the last chapter in that second part of the book was on violence and culture. And it was a critique of the way that trauma was being thought of as ptsd etc and i think that's gotten worse and worse and worse and what i wanted to do there was to have a more historicized and re-socialized understanding of trauma today there are many new ideas about trauma such as historical so-called historical trauma well that's what i was sort of questing for at that time but i didn't have the right words for it and then the last part of the book is I wanted to show that medical anthropology had come of age in the 1980s and 90s and had produced some very fine ethnographies. And I wanted to present them to people who might not know about them because I thought they were very important and they helped define where medical anthropology at that point, in my view, was was going, where was it headed. And so that was meant to have an effect on the field itself to help define where the field was. That's the book, that's Writing at the Margin.
0: Just a quick follow-up question. What's the limit to ethnographical knowledge in the face of clinical reality? When is the amount of hermeneutical uncertainty enough?
1: So ethnography has a number of limits. First of all, it it's not it's not going to contribute to causal understanding. Causal understanding in medicine has got to be epidemiologically based it, or based in molecular biology. You, you have to have representative samples. You have to look at uh, things like biomarkers and, me- and biological processes. You have to also understand the virology, like, for example, in COVID, and how populations become infected, et cetera. All of that is is causal in the sense that you begin with randomized controlled trials. Ethnography doesn't do any of that. So it's not going to contribute to causality. What ethnography contributes to is it illumines an aspect of life. It illuminates an aspect of life. It brings a light to bear on some aspect of life that raises important questions. And i that's the way I see ethnography. Uh, and therefore, it's limited. You're not going to have a huge role of ethnography in, say, figuring out the cause of a disease. Some of it may help illumine some dimension, but it's not going to give you the final answer. So that within that restricted understanding of ethnography, there are other limits. Ethnographies all are limited by the positionality of the ethnographer. And every good ethnography today begins with a description of the position of the ethnographer, how they are in the world. And that demonstrates, that positioning demonstrates the limiting of the gaze, the limiting of the perspective. Um, And there are other dimensions of ethnography that have to do with the way it's written and the way it's read. I'm not going to go into those. But so ethnography is good to think with. It helps to ground our thinking, critical thinking, in a local world. It helps to understand what's at stake for people. It helps to give us a vision of how institutions and bureaucracies work. It's very useful in understanding context, which is so critical. And in that regard, it's very historical. An important part of ethnography is history. Um, You know, that's what I would say about ethnography.
0: In your book, you define cultures as lived meanings, contested, actualized, our practices, ways of being in the world. You have drawn on phenomenology for a definition of cultural as a process of action a mode of collective experience as performance. What is your stance on deliberative cultural relativism?
1: First of all, I don't believe that any, that I don't think there are any serious defenses of ethical relativism, okay? So cultural relativism as it's actually applied by anthropologists, is epistemological relativism, maybe even ontological relativism, but almost never ethical relativism. Okay, And the reason for that is that anthropologists take a stand on things. So if you go study Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you don't stand in the middle as a mediator not taking sides. You take sides. You're looking at the invasion by Russians into Ukraine and the attempt of Ukraine to defend itself. You've taken a side. And that's what happens for most ethnographers. They take a side, their position, their partisan. It's like George Orwell uh, said, I always begin from a partisan perspective. I take a side in this. You take my former student, Paul Farmer, He argued for the importance of the prioritization of the poor, what in liberation theology is called the privileging, as it were, of the poor. You're taking a side, you're taking a stand. Most ethnographies take that stand. That's why ethnographers are often accused of always being with the underdogs, with the small groups that are losing in some way, because people take a stand. So I don't think there is any ethical relativism that one has to worry about. I think that ethnographers are not ethically relative. What they are is that they want alternative value systems to be taken into account. And they they don't want to to see things only from a single value perspective. But they recognize that certain values, such as social justice, health and social equality, override any kind of intellectual concern with alternative values. That there are some values that are so important, like social justice, that they have to be given central uh, prominence.
0: Thank you so much, Professor Kleinman. Okay. I think we're at, at the limits of our time now
1: great yeah. great Good to meet you Keep me advised of how you move ahead and and look forward to future communication.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye.